There are passages of scripture that are intimidating to a preacher. (laughs) Ones in which the truths of God's word, the themes of redemption, the the biblical theological, theological connections from Old to New Testament that go all the way from the garden and even prior from creation to the new heavens and the new earth. Those passages are challenging to preach because the pastor, the preacher, will almost certainly leave the pulpit that morning feeling like he was not enabled to unleash the fullness of the power and significance of the text that's before us. John 3.16 is a passage like that. Simple as it is, it's the it's a text that the children learn. Our, our cubbies learn a portion of it in Awana and our children in Sunday school. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not just 3.16. Really, John 3, 1 to 21, Jesus' whole conversation with Nicodemus is a passage like that where biblical themes are intersecting in such a way that that there's no way to plumb the depths. I remember a professor of mine in seminary saying, John 3.16 is a verse like the ocean in which a child can wade or an elephant could swim. And when that's in front of you on a given morning to proclaim the richness of the Word of God at that point, that's a difficult task. The book of Romans that we're studying together right now, there's several passages like that in Romans. Um, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are the called according to God's purpose. That has so many biblical theological themes intersecting like a nexus at that one place that you could preach it for the rest of your life and not plumb the depths of what's there. And that verse sitting in the middle of Romans 8, 18 through 39, that glorious text of Scripture that reminds us of the ministry of the Spirit and of the Son on our behalf. It's been referenced several times already this morning, finishing with nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glorious text of Scripture. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. How do you communicate the fullness of that in just a few minutes' time? Well, if John 3.16 isn't the top of the list of passages like that, the passage that's before us this morning is the primary one that would fill its place. Romans 3.21-26. This is the gospel. I believe, and and many others believe as well, that it's the the clearest, most concise, richest, deepest, briefest expression of the essence of the gospel, what it entails and how it works, that appears in the New Testament. This letter to the Romans, which is all about the gospel, all about the revelation of the glory of God, has this passage at its peak 
when it comes to expressing the essence and the nature of the gospel. Again, how it works, what it involves. If it's the best passage in Romans, then it is arguably the best brief passage in the New Testament that communicates the gospel to us and how it works. And if it's the best passage in the New Testament for expressing the gospel, that means it's the best passage in God's word for that purpose. Which means that the six verses before us today are the richest and most efficient expression of the essence of God's eternal plan of redemption that he has communicated to humankind. That's our passage today. As I was thinking about this passage, it's a very familiar one to many of us, to most of us, in fact. Uh, if we're in the habit of sharing the gospel at all, the, the little verse 23 that sits in the middle of it is, is one that we quote often. All of sin fall short of the glory of God. But I'll tell you what, that verse almost disappears in this progression of just six verses, not because it's unimportant, it's essentially important, but it captures, in essence, what Paul's been saying for the last two chapters. Now he's wrapped the rest of the gospel around it. This glorious gospel that he celebrated all the way back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he said, this is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And I'm not ashamed of it. And then he took off immediately in 118 and started talking about the lostness of the Gentiles and the lostness of the Jews and the fact that even though they have advantage, there's no advantage when it comes to their need for salvation, to be reconciled to God in Christ. And so by the time we get to the middle of chapter 3, we, 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 we're just rehearsing what we've already heard and the rest of this glorious gospel is packaged around that central theme that he's been covering for two chapters. We're going to read this text today and we're just going to walk through it. And the reason for the different presentation this morning is we need to recognize the uniqueness of this text. If we did this every Sunday, it, it would just become normal. And there's really nothing wrong with this approach to the proclamation of the word of God. I don't like losing the pulpit, the symbol of the centrality of the word in our worship gatherings, so we don't do it lightly at all. But this is an opportunity for us to engage with a unique text of Scripture that's going to meet us all somewhere. Every one of us needs to hear this this morning. Even those of us who have already trusted Christ as Savior in the way that this passage describes, it can grow old. We can get complacent with regard to our understanding of the gospel. This is a text that can put it back front and center in our hearts and minds such that it awakens our worship and praise and joyful obedience of faith once again. For any of us who here are familiar with the gospel and may have savingly believed but aren't quite sure and are really struggling with what the Word of God says about how we're reconciled to Him, oh, this is the text of Scripture for you. This is the text that tells you how it is that you are 
united with your Creator from whom you've been separated by your sin and what He's done to accomplish that. This is the essence of the Gospel. If you come to Romans 3, 21 to 26, read through it, understand it, and say, that's nice, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on. There's a clear sign. There's a clear sign of just rejecting the truth of God because you're not going to get confronted with a clearer, more direct statement about what God has done for all who savingly believe through Christ. If you're a person who really is unfamiliar with the gospel entirely, and you just happen to wander in today for some reason unknown to anyone around you, or if you're watching online this morning, because you happen to land on this place, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear the richest communication from God to his creatures about what he has done to solve the problem that exists between him and us. And if you're someone who's looking just to share your faith more effectively, if you grasp what's written in these six verses, there is the message you're sharing. So with that set up, let's turn to Romans 3, 21 to 26. Let's read this text of Scripture, and then we're just going to walk through it together. And hopefully the personal communication that we're having between you and me this morning is something that the Lord will use to drive this text more deeply into your heart and mind. This little exercise of faith on my behalf, on, on my part <laughs> this morning, what we're doing, the way we're going at the preaching of the word, is driving this text more deeply into my heart. If I can't stand in front of this body of believers who I love and whom the Lord has called me to serve and just talk about the gospel from this text for a few minutes to our mutual edification, then it, it's time to hang it up and go do something else. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to fellowship in the gospel. Listen. Listen to the word of God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So reads the word of God. Let's walk through it. But now is a great beginning for Paul. It, it reminds us of those other passages where he says, but God, where he set up a problem. Ephesians 2 is one of them. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, 
because of his great love for us, because he's rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. It's a turning point in the text, and a massive one in that little brief Ephesians chapter 2. Well, when we get to the but now at the beginning of Romans 3.21, we are ready for it. Because for the last two full chapters, from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, we've been hearing about lostness. And about the fact that there is nothing that we can do on our own to earn God's favor. In fact, on our own, we're, we're turned away from him, pursuing our own best interests. We've heard about the break in the relationship. And we've heard about the fact that it's unfixable. And we've heard about the fact that the wrath of God is being poured out on us because of it. And that's been driven home with such extended clarity that we're inclined to hear any reference in the gospel that's made through the course of those two chapters as the turning point that finally comes now in 321. But now, change of direction. And yet it's still not entirely clear what Paul meant. There's a couple of different things that he could be doing as he says, but now it might just be a logical turn. He's been talking about our lostness for these last two chapters. Now he's going to turn and talk about our salvation. Surely he's doing that. At very least, that's what the but now gives us. But I think as we get later on and we see that at this present time, God is making his righteousness known. There's a different sense in which but now works, and I think it's the one that is primary, even though I think both are there. Paul does what most of the New Testament writers do. When you, when you see a certain description from him, he's saying it on multiple levels all at once. He's turning his attention from lostness to salvation, but he's turning his attention from the old age of the first Adam and sin and death and separation from God. And he's turning his attention now to the new age of Christ Jesus, of the spirit of life. Those two ages that we talked about several months ago when we looked at Romans 5 by itself. And we'll be getting back to that chapter where those two aeons are, are, are mentioned again. The old order and the new order. And the fact that the new order has now broken in in Christ and through the ministry of his spirit. But the old order is still here and the tension and the fight that we experience between those two is the essence of chapter 7. And we'll get to that in due course as well. So when Paul says, but now, he's turning the corner. He's turning the corner in this letter, but he's also turning the corner in salvation history. And he's saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Until this day, the law was the greatest manifestation of the righteousness of God that had been given to us. The very standard of God's purity and holiness and righteousness established through his communication with Moses on the mountain and etched in ten summary categorical statements on tablets of stone. The righteousness of God, his expectation, 
And it was spelled out in the next chapters of Exodus after receiving the law in Exodus 20. And an exposition was given in order to understand the richness and the depth of these ten words about the righteousness of God. Well, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is something new manifesting the righteousness of God besides what we've seen already and what Israel has seen that has given them such a privileged place in God's program. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And when we're talking about the righteousness of God here, again, it's a bit ambiguous, just like but now was ambiguous. And again, there's a couple of things in focus, I think, that by the end of these six verses, we'll see with some clarity. We're seeing the righteousness of God revealed, meaning his, the inherent quality of his nature as pure and holy in unquestioned and unqualified ways. Limitless righteousness. But we're also seeing his righteousness communicated in such a way that it makes human beings righteous by the means that he has chosen to do so. So we're going to read about the revelation of the righteousness of God in these verses, but we're also going to hear something about that righteousness being communicated to us such that we become righteous. And both of those are in focus as we read in verse 21 that the righteousness of God has been manifested now apart from the law. And then he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We had some more time this morning. We go back and dig into the law and the prophets and recognize the degree to which they are looking forward to this day that Paul is now describing and transitions toward it with the but now. We could read Jeremiah 31 and read about the, the new covenant that's not like the old one that's going to be given and the law of God is going to be written on our hearts and Everyone in this community, this covenant community, is going to believe in him. We won't need to witness to our brothers because in the covenant community, they will all know the Lord. We could turn to Ezekiel 36, and it's a passage that I think is in Paul's mind from the time he picks up his pen to write the letter to the Romans to the time he lays it down. It seems like Ezekiel 36 is standing behind this letter from beginning to end. A beautiful text of Scripture. In fact, I have it marked here, so I'm going to flip over there and just read for a moment from Ezekiel 36. As you read in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. That's the new birth that he was talking to Nicodemus about, Jesus was. We're referencing it just a few moments ago, and I think Ezekiel 36 was also in Jesus' mind as he was talking to that leader of Israel that day. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, the obedience of faith. And to be careful to obey my rules. A rich text of scripture, Ezekiel 36. Promising Israel a future salvation in which they will be changed from the inside out. 
they will be given a new heart. And I can't miss the, the implication of the, the heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh. A heart of stone like the stone tablets on which the law was written now replaced with a, a heart that's beating and pulsing with the very truth of God programmed into it. That's the new birth that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. And it's just standing here behind Romans 3, 21 to 26, so that you can hear the echo of this teaching off of the walls of that passage. A glorious picture of what's happening. A righteousness that is revealed that's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bore witness to it. They told you it was coming. And now, now, Paul says, it's here. I want to capture this in words for this church with whom I'm hoping to have a shared ministry experience. Goes on in verse 22. You see the dash in the text. I think that's well placed because he's been talking about the righteousness of God at the beginning of 21. And then 22, he gets right back to it. So he just picks it up again. After this thought, from that, but now a righteousness of God have been manifested apart from the law uh, uh, and prophets, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. As we get down to verse 26, we read, Uh, 25 and 26 really we read that the righteousness of God is part of what's being reestablished here he wants to he wants to remind people of the righteousness of God even as that righteousness is conveyed or given to becomes characteristic of the people who savingly believe in him through Christ and here I think we're seeing that as well the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ we've seen where that righteousness of verse 21 is now being communicated in verse 22, and it's being communicated by faith, and it's being communicated by faith in a particular object, and that object is the promised Messiah, Christ. That's what that word means. The promised Messiah of Israel, Jesus. This righteousness of God that is now being manifested is not just his inherent righteous quality of a holy and pure God. It's the righteousness that we receive by trusting in him through the mediator that he has sent through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Now we're hearing verse, chapters 1 and 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you hear how it's a virtual parenthetic statement when it's mentioned here? Again, not unimportant, but a parenthesis. There's no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, that's worth pondering for just a moment as well. Falling short of the glory of God. You've probably heard the illustration of transgression as being a word that means missing the mark. So it's like if you fire an arrow at a target, you miss the bullseye. And that's a, that one of the images that's used to capture the nature of our sin. Uh, the, the, the righteous life that God desires is the target. We fire at it and we miss. All right? Well, this image here is like 
the arrow misses the target, but it drops two-thirds of the way to the target. It just, it just it doesn't get there. As a matter of fact, if we tried to make it a, a ratio, it would stop well sooner than two-thirds of the way there. The arrow can't hit the target. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is the glory of God from which we've fallen short? <laughs> My friends, it's the essence of who God is. The glory of God has been defined as the visible manifestation of his holiness and righteousness. So when we talk about the shining glory of God in the Old Testament, we're talking about the manifestation of the limitless purity and holiness and righteousness of God and the best we have is a shining light like the sun. The greatness of the glory of God, his purity and holiness being made visible. Here, I think it's talking about the God who is the object of our worship, but is the object of our relationship, the God to whom we're reconciled, the God by whose grace, as a gift, we're made righteous. We're made suitable for relationship with him. And we just read it a few minutes ago from Romans 5. It, it's one page over in my Bible, probably in yours as well. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, same subject that we're talking about here, chapter 5, verse 1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is done. We're, we're reconciled to him. Through him, we have also obtained access by grace by faith into this grace in which we stand. Faith is the means of our receiving this gift in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's, it's a present day reality and it's a future tense hope. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul's writing to the Corinthians? He's talking to them again about this same subject of being reconciled to God in Christ. And he says, we with unveiled faces, again, the law and Moses being in the backdrop there, we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. What we learn about the glory of God, what's being talked about here, is that in Christ, by faith in him, we are reconciled to God and we are recipients not just of his righteousness, but of his glory. The God who we read about in Isaiah who will not share his glory with another, shares it with his children. That's a stunning reality. And through the gospel, through trusting in Christ and through beginning to walk by faith, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus with ever-increasing glory throughout the course of this life with the hope then of receiving the full measure of glory that God himself has intended to communicate through his salvation at the time that we step into his presence for all eternity. And this characteristic of this saving, loving God is characteristic of his children as well. They reflect his glory, having been recipients of it. Peter talks about being recipients or participants in the divine nature. We receive the glory of God. 
But here, because of our sin, we're being reminded of what we just read. In the midst of talking about receiving this salvation by faith, we're reminded of the fact that on our own, in our sin, we fall short of that glory. So, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. So, we get right back to the people in verse 22 who have savingly believed. We've been reminded that they fell short of the glory of God on their own, but they are justified by his grace. Here's the word I love as a gift. They are justified by his grace as a gift. That is so much the heart of this text, so that's my title this morning for this sermon. By his grace as a gift. There are no sweeter words to hear on the heels of Romans 1.18 through 3.20 than the fact that the righteousness of God that is revealed in Christ is ours by the grace of God, you know, God's riches that are completely undeserved, they are ours by the grace of God as a gift. You're here this morning wondering how to earn the salvation of God, how to enter into the joy of the lives that you see around you. How to enter into the joy of the worship that raises hands and brings tears. How to be swept into that. And what do I have to do? Well, what you have to do is recognize your sinfulness, confess it to a loving and holy God, and receive by faith the gift that he's given in Christ. Because there's nothing you can do. If we don't know that, by this point in this letter, it's hard to believe we'll ever learn it anywhere else. All who savingly believed, and by the way, that all is the assumed subject of verse 24, and it picks it up from verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. The implication is, and all are justified. It doesn't mean that all who have fallen short of the glory of God are justified. Because it's already given us the basis upon which that justification happens. It comes by faith. It's not just given as a gift to everybody indiscriminately. It's given to those who receive it by faith. So we might say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And any of those who are justified are justified by his grace. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. With that final phrase, we're sent right back to Exodus 12 and following again. Redemption is the word that was used again and again through the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to talk about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. That deliverance was the greatest manifestation of God's salvation that had happened on earth up until the time that Jesus came and did what he did. And even then, it wasn't immediately understandable what Jesus did. It confused even his closest followers. But over time, as it sunk in and began to be processed, we recognized that the whole story of the deliverance of Old Testament Israel out of Egypt is a pre-telling of the story of salvation. It's a demonstration of the power of God to deliver his people 
enslaved in a foreign land, and yet through a series of ten plagues, the ultimate one of which was the loss of the firstborn in the family for the sake of the deliverance of the people, the curse of God falling on the firstborn that his people might escape. And they did. And a short time later, get trapped between that pursuing army and the Red Sea. And the Lord stands between them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and just doesn't let the army advance and opens up the sea for his children to walk across on dry ground. The cloud, the fire move along with them. The army pursues and the sea closes in. That's God handling his enemies. We can see that and we can think that is an act of deliverance that's beyond my ability to comprehend. I, I can't wrap my mind around how that can happen. But my friends, that was simple in comparison to what Jesus did in the ultimate act of deliverance through the cross, through his death and resurrection. That was a simple miracle compared to this one. And I would have to say as well, and we'll see that a little bit more as we progress, that the significance of that one, the actual salvation that was accomplished, not just the deliverance out of Egypt, but the actual establishment of this new covenant or this old covenant community that was trusting in God and walking according to his covenant stipulations. There weren't many. It was always a remnant, but there are only a few. That group their salvation hung in the balance until such time as the payment was finally offered by Christ to secure their reconciliation with God. They're just looking forward. Even from that act of deliverance, grand as it was, to an even greater act of deliverance of which that one was just a prefiguring. All of that comes to us in that word redemption. It just pulls back Israel's experience into our understanding of what's being told to us here about the gospel itself. Redemption. The deliverance of God. The rescue of his people at his own expense. By the time Paul was writing this letter, there was an additional sort of layer to that word that talked about cost. So there was, this is deliverance at a cost, and the cost was paid by the deliverer. So that's what we see here in verse 24. They're justified by his grace as a gift through that redemption, that costly deliverance that is in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 25 explains Christ Jesus. It comes in behind those words Christ Jesus and begins with whom? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Got to pause there again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. So this Christ Jesus, who is the one in whom we are redeemed, delivered from bondage to sin, we might say. This Christ Jesus is the one God put forward. I love that. God is the active party in the provision for our sin that was made in Christ. 
And I don't think it's separating out God the Father necessarily. It certainly loops in the Father and the Spirit with God, but I think the Trinity is in view there. Whom God put forward, this Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity was put forward by the Trinity himself as a propitiation by his blood. We've talked about the miracle of Christmas and how it's, it's impossible for us to imagine an eternal being, part of whose essence is he's unchanging, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How is it that you wrap your mind around the fact that one of those three persons, indivisible from the triad, takes on a body, and lives among us on the earth. That's a, that, that's a stunning reality that it's still hard to grasp. But that's what was necessary in order for the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to have blood that would appease the wrath of God such that sins could be atoned for and cleansed and removed. And that's what propitiation does. So God put this Christ, in whom we have faith and redemption, put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word. But essentially, propitiation has two parts to it that are worth knowing and that help us to appreciate the salvation that is ours in Christ. Propitiation consists of, first, appeasing the wrath of God. A lot of times that word propitious is used with regard to uh, mythological deities and it's usually a bloodthirsty ritual that's being described but that's not what's being talked about here because this God is righteous and holy and perfect in purity. Which is why it's necessary for him to be angry with sin. Anger against sin and rebellion against a pure and holy God is the right and pure and righteous response. God's standard cannot be offended with impunity. Sin must be cared for. And anyone who is in sin has to be somehow delivered from that in order to be reconciled to a holy God without the holy God becoming unholy by association. And so this propitiation word is massive, important. It only appears twice in the New Testament, by the way. Propitiation, the wrath of God against our sin absorbed. And then the other half of the word is the half that some people think just stands there as the only meaning. Namely, that our sins are removed. That we're cleansed. You know, uh, Psalm 103, that they're removed as far as, us, as the east is from the west. The word that's usually used for that is expiation alongside of propitiation. So there's a lot of debate on whether we should use the word expiation there, whom God put forward as an expiation through his blood, as the, the means by which your sin will be removed. It'll be taken away from you. You'll be cleansed of it. But that doesn't care for the whole picture. That doesn't take care of the whole problem. Propitiation needs to be the word because it's not just that our sins are removed. But while we're on that subject, are you thankful that your sins are removed? Amen. But the other side? 
is even greater yet. If that's possible. The wrath of God against our sins has been appeased. So in Christ, when we receive him by faith, the wrath of God that we justly deserve because of our sin has been absorbed by Jesus, not just taken away and swept under the carpet, but poured out on him at the cross. And in addition to that, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So that now this God of perfect righteousness is making us righteous as well. He's doing it as a gift, and a gift that's just received by faith, just saving belief, trusting that that is a true statement, and saying in response to it, my life is now yours. You have purchased me out of bondage to sin. And my life is now yours. I am a servant of the living God. That's the language Paul used for himself. So whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, there's the means of that propitiation being made to be received by faith. It's underscored again. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Ooh. That, I think, is the most stunning reality that's in these six verses. The one that we wouldn't have seen coming. Did you know God could be accused of being unrighteous? Because he established his law, so he set his expectation for what his righteousness and holiness should include. He set penalties for having offended that law. But then, throughout the history of his old covenant people, those laws were offended over and over and over again. And sometimes the sentence was carried out, and sometimes it wasn't. And it almost appears to have been a random application of that, of the penalty for that standard being violated. And, and pretty soon, you can especially read this on the pages of Malachi. Pretty soon, people were going through empty motions. They just, they were doing it because it was there and they should pay attention to it, but it didn't really matter to them. It wasn't a heart change that was going on. They just acknowledged the law and they did their best, but they would also make excuses for any lack of obedience to the law, any lack of conformity to the law. And seemed to do so with impunity. They'd get away with it. But now, but now, in Christ, God has put forward, put up, put out there, lifted up. That's the language Jesus used in, in, in John 12. Uh, Colossians 2 also talks about him being put forward. God put forward this propitiation because it could have appeared that he had let sin go up until now and hadn't dealt with it according to the standard that he said his holiness and righteousness demanded. This is God showing himself to be righteous. This is how we know it's not just the righteousness that's ours by faith that Paul is talking about in this text, but it's the righteousness of God. He's defending his own righteousness and he's showing us in the work that he did in Christ, 
that all of those sins that appeared to have been overlooked in the past were all being meticulously cared for such that, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. That's why we think that temporal turning point is even the better one. This is a shift in salvation history going on here, even though it's also a shift in the letter. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, might be proven righteous. By the way, I think I mentioned it earlier, righteousness and justice have the same root word, right? So that he might be just, he might be righteous. He might be proven just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is where we find out, finally, that both aspects of righteousness were being celebrated here and seen here and proclaimed here. God's righteousness is being established. He didn't let it all go. His wrath fell on Jesus for all who believe. And my friends, some of those cases were high-profile cases. They're impossible to miss. What does the law demand for adultery and murder? Death in both cases. And yet King David, the man after God's own heart, got away with it. And he was told, he quoted Psalm 51 earlier in this very chapter. How does that work? Well, it works because with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And God knew from eternity past that the cross was coming and the propitiation would be put forward to absorb his wrath against all who savingly believe such that they can be reconciled to him in Christ, the one who provided it. And on all else who don't savingly believe, the wrath of God against sin descends and falls on them personally. That's the picture that we get in Romans 3, 21 to 26. It's an absolutely amazing, stunning reality. It's hard to describe. You read it and you think, you're bowled over by one phrase after another, and the more you study it, the more you're, you, you're bowled over, the, the slower you have to read because of all that's entailed in each successive phrase as it's given. But don't lose the overall. Don't lose the big picture. The fact that what's being described here is impossible. It's not just that the human mind couldn't conceive of it before they saw it happened, such that there really is no way for rebellious, sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God. It's, it's a logical impossibility. It can't happen but even after we see what Jesus did it still baffles and befuddles how does God become flesh how if God becomes flesh does he become guilty of sin without sinning How is it that one whose very essence includes existence, do you understand what I mean by that? Whose very nature is life itself. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. I am life. I, defend, I, I, I define life. 
How is it possible for one who defines life to die? This is impossible. You cannot unscramble eggs. You cannot get toothpaste back into a tube. And you cannot reconcile rebel sinners to a holy God. You can't. It's not possible. Except that it is. But now, this righteousness has been revealed. And it's a righteousness that not only accomplishes that which we thought impossible. It's a righteousness that while it happens, it proves God righteous. And makes him the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus without compromising his standard in the least and without withholding anything, including his glory, from the ones who are saved by faith in the work that he's accomplished. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why we celebrate the body and blood of the Lord. It has accomplished our salvation in ways that are inconceivable. And yet God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can give it all to us in six verses. Isn't that an amazing text of Scripture? Let's pray now and remember the body and blood of the Lord with thanksgiving to God for what he's accomplished. And as I pray, please, communion servers, join me at the front and musicians as well. Heavenly Father, amazing as this text is, I honestly still leave this time thinking there's so much more here. But Father, that is precisely the way that it should be. That's not taking focus off of the glorious God and his glorious salvation through his glorious Son by his glorious Spirit. It is just acknowledging that we could spend the rest of our lives in this text and still be mining new and deeper truths out of it that link together your story of redemption from eternity past to eternity future. Father, I pray for each one that we mentioned earlier this morning, that each one would engage with the gospel in the way that is most helpful for them. For the believer who's grown cold in heart, Father, may the wood of their hearts be reignited by the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who is caught in doubt, may the grandeur of your purpose and plan captivate them. And may your spirit enable saving belief. For the one unfamiliar with this in its entirety, Lord God, open their eyes right now today, I pray, by your grace and save them. What a great day that would be. And for each of us who just want to be a little better at sharing our faith, I pray that we might be equipped and strengthened in the content of the gospel through this glorious text of Scripture. And, oh, Father, just as we prayed at the start, 
May your spirit through your word capture our hearts by it. May Christ who accomplished our salvation be exalted. And may your glory be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.